You know, despite the church spires that dot Europe, it wasn't always that way. You know, there was a time when Europe was full of pagan barbarian tribes. And taking the gospel to them, well, it was no small task. It was likened into storming the beaches of Normandy with a rowboat. Barbarians were entrenched in their pagan idolatry. They were entrenched in their legacies of worshiping nature, worshiping gods, little g. But one man, one man from England named Boniface, took on the challenge in the 8th century. And he went to what we know today as Germany and walked directly into the sacred forest of Thor. Thor, god of what? Thunder. Yeah, y'all had lunchboxes, right? He walks into this forest, walks directly to the sacred massive oak by which all of the tribes would worship at, and pulled out an axe and cut it down. How's that for seeker-sensitive evangelism? It was said that he threw a stroke and God blew it down. And all the tribes stood around and waited for him to be struck by lightning. He was not. And they left their pagan idolatry and embraced Christ. He then took the wood and built a chapel to St. Peter. Boniface had what we would call as an underdog faith. The kind of faith where God gets all the glory because the fellow swinging the axe is pretty weak by human standards. It's reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And in the same way, as we again look at Hebrews chapter 11, the preacher wants this church of Jewish believers, this church of believers who are discouraged, who are drifting, who are scared, who are standing under these worldly structures of power and persecution to realize that not only will God fulfill his promise, but he has chosen the weak to do it. And that's what's being lost in their understanding. You see, like us, they're thinking something must be going wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to have a difficult Nero. I'm not supposed to have my family reject me. I'm not supposed to lose my job. And so the preacher wants to remind them, not only as he has reminded them, Will God keep His promise no matter what? But let me remind you, he's saying, it's the weak things that He has chosen. You, us, this little church. This is what He is using to actually fulfill His promises. Rather than being daunted by the power and persecution that comes upon them, this little church is to see God's use of underdogs as part of his plan. 
So I want us to look at this little next sec- this next section here and see that that this underdog faith shows itself in three ways. Let's look ahead a little bit. This first part we're going to see today is that God uses an underdog faith and some people never see the advancement of the promises. They they die and they never see God's kingdom really advance. And yet they die with an underdog faith. And then there are those who experience great advancement. The Bonifaces of the world, right? The ones who swing the axe and entire countries end up leaving paganism. They're the ones described in verse 32. Look down in chapter 11. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith, watch this, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I want that kind of underdog faith. Amen? I want to be able to say, yeah, I had that underdog faith, and here's how God used it. And some of us will. And it depends on the time, and it depends on God's plan. But then there are those who will die having experienced apparent failure. Look at verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Yeah, I don't like that kind of underdog faith. And yet, verse 39 explains, all these gained approval through their faith. All of them. Those who never saw advancement. Those who conquered kingdoms, put foreign armies to flight. And those who died in utter humiliation and failure by the world's standards. You see, it's not the advancement of the promise that determines our value or success. It's the faith that God gives us that the promise will happen. And then what we're going to learn this week is that he uses the underdogs to fulfill those promises. And if you think about it from this Hebrew church's perspective, this is what they need to hear. Not that something's gone wrong, that the plan's gone awry, but that no, this is part of God's plan to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong, to to use the foolish to shame the wise, to advance His kingdom through crooked sticks in order to strike a straight lick. Why? Because God gets all the glory. Amen? And so if we can understand, this is our part. Whether we ever see advancement or not, this is our part. 
God's going to use his underdogs to do it. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we are excited to hear from you today, to hear your word, to hear the truth. And Father, I pray that we would not only understand it, but that we would believe it. It would change our perspective and that we would start to delight in being underdogs. We would start to delight in in what you are going to use us to do. And that we not only have faith in the unseen promise, but we have great significance that you've chosen to use weak vessels like us to do your bidding. Oh, what a privilege it is, Lord. What a privilege it is that our lives get to count for something. Forget seven secrets to success or how we find significance. You have provided it and that you have graciously set your affection upon us. That you have, through the shed blood of your Son, brought us near, adopted us as children, and left us here to be ambassadors for the King. Oh, Father, no matter what category we're in, whether we're the successful ones who conquer armies or the ones who die in humiliation or simply the ones who never see an advancement, may we realize that you are the great keeper of your word and you are the great king of all creation who stooped low through your son's death to redeem your creation and draw us near. Thank you, Lord, for being willing to use us, such broken vessels, to carry the great treasure of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Help us to see more clearly this morning, even the things that are unseen, to have a greater assurance that this is part of your plan. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I'm going to tell us three stories, or the preacher is going to tell us three stories this morning of underdog faith. And these three stories are going to specifically have to do with those who really see no advancement, who are promised things that they really never see and never see any progress, and yet confidently believe they die with the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And what we want to do is make note of some commonality between them, because there is a lot here, more than than meets the eye. So we'll dip back into Genesis to look at this. If you're taking notes, we're going to simply look at Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph's underdog faith. Look at verse 20 with me. By faith... Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Now, right off the bat, and I heard this from my daughter this week, hold on, hold on. Now, I know this story, and I'm not seeing Isaac's underdog faith here, right? We know this story, right? Story of deception, even blasphemy, lying. Well, Let's check it out. Turn to Genesis chapter 27 and let's look at it together. 
Genesis chapter 27, and I'm going to start in verse 1. We'll walk through this text. Now it came about when Isaac was old, and his eyes were too dim to see, that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold now, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now clearly Isaac has cataracts here as an old man, and there's no Canaanite Medicare to take care of it. His assumption is that at 137 years old, it's time for him to go to the cave of Machpelah, schedule a gravesite service, uh, get his affairs in order, and die. I'm not sure he could have imagined at the time that he would live, you want to guess, another 43 years. And by the way, our Sunday school picture of Jacob and Esau being these young boys, maybe in their early 20s, not exactly right. The twins were 77 years old at this time. So, so far, all this is very normal. This is what fathers do before they die. Dads bless the eldest. They pass along the blessing. If you're an older brother, you understand this. It's the order of things, and it's good, and it's right. Why? Because you were the guinea pig for your parents. They made lots of mistakes, and it's only fair that you should get the lion's share of the inheritance. If you're a younger sibling, I'm sorry that you don't see this. But there's something amiss here. Turn back with me two pages and 78 years, if you will, and let's look at the twins' birth announcement. Genesis chapter 25, and look at verse 23. Now, Mama's asking, what is going on? She's expecting twins, and she can't sleep at night because there's lots of fighting. Fists are being thrown in her belly. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the, what? Older shall serve the younger. And then what happens when they're born? Esau comes out, nice, red, and hairy. And who's hanging on to his heel? Yaakov. Heel grabber, they called him. Now add to that that Esau has just married outside the promise by wedding two pagan Hittites, of which it really, really killed his parents. And now we have Isaac wanting to bless his older one. My point is this. Isaac knows better. Isaac knows better. He knows the prophecy he knows how his oldest has upset the promise by marrying outside of the family. And yet, he's more concerned about a good steak. 
He's more concerned about a good meal. He's more concerned about the order of things, that this is how things go in the world. And I like my older boy. I mean, let's remember Esau is, he is the older brother. He, 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 he's, he's muscular. He's strong. He's an outdoorsman. He's a lifelong member of the NRA, and he's on the front of Bowhunter magazine, right? Jacob, he's watching the cooking channel. You know, dad's going to gravitate towards the tougher one. And so he says, go make me a dinner like I like. And we'll just do this thing. Now, the other interesting thing is this is all done in the privacy of a tent with mama listening in the next room. This is not an eight-person Coleman tent. These are massive, massive tents, but with fabric walls. And she's listening. By the way, this ceremony should be very public. So there's even a sense in which Isaac is doing it on the down low. So Mama hears about this, talks to Jacob and says, um, we know what God has said, so let's help God out a little bit. Do we do that? Do we help God out a little bit sometimes? The ends justify the means. This is what God wants. He's obviously taking a break somewhere. I can help him. God helps those who what? Yeah, that's not in Scripture, okay? Pull that off the refrigerator. So she devises a plan. She puts animal skins on his hands and on the back of his neck. She tells him to go to the corral, get two goats, so she can grill up, soak them, and put some spices on them, and make mutton taste like venison. Now also remember, adding to the story here, that Jacob has already rooked him out of his birthright for a bowl of gumbo. And he knows that with the birthright goes the blessing, so in his mind, he's justified. Oh, he's nervous. He's nervous about getting caught. But he knows that these go together, so why not just do it? Everyone's guilty here. Everyone's guilty. And so you say, how is the Hebrew church supposed to emulate Isaac's faith? And I would say, hang on, you're getting ahead of me. Let's get back to the story. Verse 27, Jacob goes in wearing this suede sport coat smelling like Old Spice and buck attractant, okay? He goes in with the, uh, the skins on his hands and on the back of his neck. He goes in carrying uh, the venison, which is not really venison, but it's, it's goat, lamb, whatever. And he grunts and mumbles a lot so that dad can't recognize him. Remember, he's blind, but he's not deaf. Look at verse 27, chapter 27. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son. It's like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. Verse 29, watch this. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to say, boy, that sounds awfully familiar 
to an Abrahamic covenant blessing. I want you to think about what Jacob is doing here before I answer the question of how we are to emulate Isaac's underdog faith. What Jacob is doing here is the height of deception and blasphemy. He brings God's name into it if you read on. This is like asking your dying father in ECU to sign a thank you note to the sweet nurses over there when it's really a new will where you get everything. That's the level of what he's doing. And make no mistake, Jacob will pay for this. Don't read into this and say, yeah, yeah, God, God sort of honors the ends, justify the means. Jacob will pay for this. Just as he pulled the old switcheroo with pops, so Uncle Laban will do with him, right? Remember, on his wedding night, he ends up with the ugly sister. I mean, let's just be honest, that's how it reads. And just as he deceived his father with a slaughtered goat, so he will be deceived by his sons with a slaughtered goat and a bloody coat. Amen? Make no mistake, your sin will find you out. There will be consequences. So despite Isaac and Rebekah's disobedience, despite Jacob's deception and disobedience, Isaac speaks the truth by God's order. Look at verse 37. Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I have made your master and all his relatives. I have given to him as servants with the grain and new wine. I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do? Meaning I cannot take it back. There are no do-overs with this blessing. What I spoke was true. I didn't understand it that he wasn't you, but it's the truth. That doesn't look like undying, that doesn't look like underdog faith to me. Unless I read on. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you what? The blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. What Isaac did by mistake earlier, he now does deliberately, and he believes. He believes not only that the blessing and the birthright should go to the younger, but that God will fulfill his promise, the promise to Abraham through Jacob, and he does it willingly. Isaac has the weakest faith, it seems, of the patriarchs, and yet he has faith and he dies believing it and believing that it is to be done this way. Now, the interesting part of all this is that if you look at um, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, what are the commonalities? 
On their deathbed, they believe. On their deathbed, they bless. On their deathbed, they say this. And yet there's something about what they believe. They don't just believe in the promise, but they believe God is going to fulfill the promise through structures that don't fit our worldly expectations. Jacob would not be the one that I would want to fulfill the promise. I would want the stronger, the swifter, the smarter, the guy that could actually hit something he shot at, right? And yet God says, no. I want the weaker one. And that's what we're going to see here is that the weaker shall prevail over the stronger to fulfill the promise, and that is God's plan. Isaac came to believe it, even though he would never see it. It was an underdog faith. And if I'm in this little Hebrew church, I need to hear this. That I'm not someone God has forgotten. I'm not someone that is being overwhelmed by the world. I'm who, I'm who God is going to use to fulfill his promise. The weakest, the one who can't do it on my own, the one who can't hit anything, even if I try, God is going to use me, use us. Let me read to you Romans chapter 9. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. It's not that we are to think highly of ourselves. Oh, I've been thinking meanly of myself. Now I need to think highly of myself. God's going to use me. No, it's that we simply don't think of ourselves other than the gratitude by which God, according to his choice, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness or without, God's going to use us. Why? Because he's got a plan and he's going to get all the glory. Now watch what Jacob does as an old man near death. Look at Jacob's underdog faith. I'll read it to you. You don't need to turn there. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Well, this is referring to Genesis chapter 48. Turn over a few pages. Lots of Bible text today. Genesis chapter 48. Now, this is interesting. Joseph, prime minister of Egypt, has saved his family of 70 from starvation. He has placed them in the land of Goshen to keep them separate enough from the Egyptians. They now have land. They have places for their cattle. They're able to flourish. I mean, Joseph's a happy man. Chapter 48, starting in verse 5, he goes to visit his father. Jacob says, Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Circle are mine. Jacob is saying, your grandsons, my grandsons, your boys, they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon. Reuben and Simeon, that's, that's boy one, oldest, and boy two in his family. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. 
Now, what he's saying here is he's saying, God promised to me what he promised to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. I have 12 boys, but guess what? I'm going to take your sons, and I'm actually going to adopt them as mine. Joseph, you're getting a double portion through your sons, and I'm going to do this through an adoption ceremony. So in this case, the oldest and the second oldest, Reuben and Simeon, are going to be replaced effectively by two adopted ones who are getting a greater portion. You remember the story. Reuben abdicated his, uh, his role by going into his father's concubine. Simeon committed atro- uh, atrocities. So Jacob brings them in for an adoption ceremony. And though blind like Isaac, he sees clearly than he's ever seen before. Remember, Jacob's faith was also up and down. Okay? Now he's an old man, he's dying, he sees things clearly, and he makes a last will and testament, a last will and testament that won't be effective for 400 years. He's giving Joseph a double portion in the land. What Abraham was promised and was also promised to me, you're going to get twice the amount. You're going to get a birthright amount. Now remember, the only thing that Jacob owns at this point is the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. So now look at verse 8, chapter 48 of Genesis. When Israel saw Joseph's son, he says, Who are these? Now this is interesting because he's blind, uh, but he's not that blind. He knows his grandsons. This is like, uh, this is like when I do a wedding. Who gives this woman? What do her parents say? Her mother and I do. This is a ceremony. Who are these? Not like I don't know who they are. Who are these? Joseph says, these are my sons. And then what Jacob's going to say is like, now they're going to be my sons. He's going to give them a new name effectively. Now we have to realize what is going on here. This is a a huge transfer of not only um, identification, but allegiance. Remember who's reading this. The first readers are the Israelites in the wilderness. Who is their leader? Moses. What had Moses chosen? He had chosen to identify himself and to be with the Hebrews rather than be part of the royal family of Egypt. Joseph is doing the same. He's saying, though I may look like an Egyptian, though I may be the prime minister, the number two man only behind Pharaoh, I am choosing to cast my lot with the Hebrews in the land of Goshen. This is a big, big deal. The number two man in the country bows before the promise bearer. Imagine what Joseph must be thinking right now. I mean, this is a kid who, who, who was kidnapped, sold into slavery, didn't see his, his, his parents for, for years, didn't see his his. his Brothers, and now he's not only has power and fame and wealth, but he's got his family about him. He saved them from starvation. And he's seen the promise continue. It's better than he could have ever expected. But now watch what happens when God has a different path to get to the promise. Verse 13, Joseph took them both. Ephraim 
with his right hand towards Israel's left. Ephraim's the younger, okay. And Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right. So if, if I'm Israel, which is the new name for Jacob, puts the boys before me, he's put the oldest right here. So I reach out with my right hand and bless him. And then, you know, the younger boy gets the leftovers kind of type thing, right? Watch what happens. Verse 14. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of who? Ephraim, who was the younger. And he took his left hand and put it on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands. What do you think Joseph's thinking right now? Because he knows there's no do-overs, right? He's freaking out. He literally grabs his father's hand, it says, verse 15. And he says, Dad, 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 over here. Here's the firstborn. Here's the firstborn. Verse 17 says, it displeased him. The Hebrew literally reads, it was evil in his eyes. My translation says he was ticked off. Was Dad really that blind? Come on. This is serious business. He's got one shot at this. Verse 19, but his father refused. Joseph's grabbed his hand. He's like, uh-uh, no, son. Barks back at him. I know, I know, I know. And he will also become a people, and he will also be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. It is the weaker, it is the younger by which God will fulfill his promise. This underdog faith is not just in the evidence of things not seen, as important as that is. It's also us realizing in the moment that God is going to use things which are contrary to all worldly structures. The things which are not to do the things which are. The way this first century church, the way we will be able to endure persecution is not to think we're going crazy when everything goes sour. God is still on his throne. His promises will be fulfilled. And then here's the key. He's going to choose to do it through the weakest, the silliest, the things that the, world's mo the, that the world mocks. Us! And if we could realize that, then we would be willing to walk in and swing a big axe when you got a lot of big hairy guys around you. Let me show you one more thing. He's about to die, verse 21, verse 22. He says something very interesting. I give you one portion more than your brother's which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. I give, literally, I give you one portion more. Literally, a ridge of land or a shoulder is, is, is the actual word there. The Hebrew word is Shechem. I give you an extra Shechem. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, here's what's interesting. We know Jacob's body was embalmed. We know that Joseph took him back, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. We know in a minute here that Joseph is embalmed, mummified, and he says, don't leave my bones here. You take me back to the land. But do you know where Joseph is buried? 
not in the cave of Machpelah. He was buried in Shechem. He was buried in Shechem. And do you know where Shechem is in the Promised Land? Do you know what, what tribe controls Shechem? Ephraim, the younger. What Jacob cannot see with his eyes, he sees clearer than he ever has with his heart. And what Jacob fought for on his own, he now trusts God will do through the weakest of all structures. Be encouraged, Christian. God has left us here as weak as we are to do his bidding through us. That should greatly encourage us. Look at the last one. Joseph's underdog faith. This is Genesis 50. Turn over two more pages. Look at verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, here's what's interesting here. You could just do a cursory reading in this and say, hey, Joseph's the same. He's got an underdog faith. He believes that the promise will be fulfilled. It's more than that. It's more than that. You see, he not only knows the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, he knows the details of it, which would be written in Genesis 15. Let me read it for you. Listen to the details of the prophecy made to Abraham in 2166, 350 years earlier. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Joseph is not just believing in a promise that will happen. Joseph is believing as the number two man of the empire of Egypt that God will have two million unarmed, oppressed slaves effectively defeat the most powerful country in the world. He knows that however God's going to do it, and he doesn't know how, that God will take his people out and will win and will win with the weakest of all people. And not only that, but Pharaoh and his armies were defeated when they tried to pursue them. So now listen to this. After 40 years in the wilderness, okay, this is the original readers of this, the Israelites. After 40 years in the wilderness, do you know what they need to be reminded of? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the people's. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. He loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land of Pharaoh the king. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. They're hearing this right before they go into a land full of giants. Isn't this amazing? Isaac gets it. It took a little while, okay? He got the fact that God would fulfill his promise, but God chose to do it through the younger, the weaker. Jacob, he gets it. No, it's going to be through the younger, Ephraim, not Manasseh. Joseph, when he's old. Yeah, not only is God going to keep his promise, but he's going to have you beat a world empire and do it. And he's going to get all the glory. Trust God in your weakness. Trust God in the midst of a world that says you will be defeated. Trust that God will not only fulfill his promise, but that he is going to use us to do it. I mean, can you imagine putting the weakest guy in the heavyweight championship in the ring? This guy's going to lose. And someone says, yeah, but have you seen his coach? But his coach is not in the ring. Oh, but his coach is the one that's directing everything. So what does this mean for us? This means that when we get down, when we are scared, when we feel like we are overwhelmed by the world, that we need to remember not only that God will fulfill his promises, but that he has chosen to do, do so through us, even though we may never see it. The question is this. Let me leave us with this. Will we as underdogs have the kind of faith that God uses to fulfill his promise? Because there's a responsibility here. Will we embrace being underdogs, our role? Will we have the kind of underdog faith? And you may say, if you're like me, but I don't want the kind of underdog faith that never sees advancement. You know, I, I don't like this text so much. I like the next one. I want to be the guy that that conquers kingdoms, that puts foreign, foreign armies to flight. I want to be a Boniface, right? Who wants to be a Boniface? I want to be a Boniface. Give me an axe, right? And I get that. No doubt Boniface had that kind of underdog faith. But can I tell you the rest of the story? He also had the kind of underdog faith that wouldn't let him retire. Wouldn't let him be sedentary. And when he was an old man, he was drawn back to the mission field, to what we would call the Netherlands today, because those pagans needed Christ. And he was martyred for his faith in 754 A.D., having never seen the fruits of his labor there. The key is this, it's not the advancement that we see or don't see, but it's the faith that God will do what he said he will do, okay? The guys who put the foreign armies to flight or the guys who never see any action are no better or worse. And God may have for us to be the guys who are sawn in two or like Boniface 
are martyred for their faith. But as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40, it's okay because they had gained approval by their faith and God had something better for them. Even better than the temporal promise. He had something better. Do you remember what that better was in verse 16? It was a better country. It was a better city. It was a place that God had reserved for them. Look, I don't know what, um, I don't know what the coming years hold for us. Uh, what I see in Scripture, it's going to get worse. It's going to get more difficult. I have no doubt that God will complete the work which He has begun in us. The faith that He has given us is the faith that will sustain us and that genuine faith will persevere to the end. But I do know this, that a majority of the New Testament is written to churches, churches who bind themselves together in faith, in resolute determination to do great commission work, and that we are called to remain faithful, not only knowing that we have eternal life, but that he is choosing to use us in the here and now, whether we ever see results or not. And I think this text is meant to show us that we need to realize how important it is, how great it is that God is choosing to use us. Metro Bible Church, God is choosing to use the folks at Metro Bible Church to advance his kingdom and we may never see what we really want to see. This is not about just knuckling down and enduring and putting your head down and bearing up under until we get to heaven. Let's just hold our breath till we get there. Baloney. This is like Boniface, about swinging an ax in the face of opposition and yet being willing to die when someone puts a gun to your head. And if neither of those things ever happen and your life is just plainly normal, but you worship and disciple and do great commission work, you still gain approval and your, your life still amounted for something because he used you in ways that you will never know, maybe until you get to heaven. So we are meant to be encouraged. We're meant to realize how weak we are, yes, but not be discouraged by it to be encouraged by it, because God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Amen?